Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books Network. I'm Renee Garfinkel, your host with the Van Leer Jerusalem Institute. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. David Resnick about his new book, Representing Education in Film, How Hollywood Portrays Educational Thoughts, Settings, and Issues. David Resnick's career has focused on education, particularly, but not exclusively, religious education. In addition to teaching and research, David Resnick served for more than 20 years as Director of Israel Programs for the Jewish Educational Service of North America. David Resnick, welcome to the show. Hi, good to be here. David, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. Well, since this is a conversation about movies, I I grew up in uh, the Southland of Los Angeles and spent a good number of years in North Hollywood. California, which, as you can imagine, is not too far from Hollywood, California. So um, I grew up as a media child and, and, and liking movies. I went to UCLA, and um, which has a fine film school, but actually studied psychology most all of my professional uh, uh, academic life, both undergraduate at UCLA and then my PhD from Columbia University, teaches college, actually, in developmental psychology. So I'm a West Coast person who transplanted to the East Coast uh, for about 20 years where I got married. And then a bit more than 30 years ago, uh, my young family and I moved uh, here to Israel, Jerusalem, where we've, we've lived ever since. How did you come to study the way education is represented in film? Uh, by, by, by accident, I think. Um, it, it's... Uh, in the late 1990s, just on summer vacation, I went to see Baz Luhrmann's movie Strictly Ballroom, just for fun. And for those who've ever seen it, it's it's a really a dance a dance movie, Strictly Ballroom. But when I walked out, I, I had an epiphany that it's really a movie about informal dance education. It takes place in a dance school and uh, with young people. And that was the first, the beginning first step about uh, paying closer attention to movies that have an educational dimension. What is it about movies that makes them a powerful source of knowledge and education? Well, if it's a good movie, it's uh, a compelling case study um, of some educational uh, episode. And uh, case study research, of course, for the last 20 years or more is, has become respectable in some people's eyes. So a dramatic presentation of an educational situation is a a wonderful way to think about and talk about um, educational issues. Um, The good thing about movies is you can watch them over and over again and you can show them to a group, a a case study. um, You you kind of can read it, but uh, it's hard to show it to a group. So uh, films in my own teaching then became uh, a fine way also to get people's attention and to be able to focus in on interesting educational situations. 
You mention in the book that movies are a source of knowledge, ordinary knowledge, the kind of knowledge people use to make everyday decisions. So the movies you consider educational are not necessarily obviously educational. Is that right? Well, especially in the book, I didn't focus on on classroom teaching at all because lots and lots of books and articles have been written about classroom teaching um, in movies. So I was interested uh, really in the educational act. Um, and the educational act, as in Baz Luhrmann's movie, takes place in, in, can take place in lots of different settings. So the emphasis in the book is on informal education, sports education, religious education, art education, um, mostly whenever possible out, outside the classroom, a classroom setting. I should say another word about, um, ordinary knowledge. That, that's a technical term from, from, uh, uh, Lynn Blum and Cohen's uh, work. Uh, there's what's called professional knowledge, which is what academics produce when you do any, almost any kind of professional research. That's a specialized kind of knowledge. Ordinary knowledge is the knowledge we use in everyday life to make our own decisions. And it, it may have some relationship to professional knowledge, but but most people in our everyday interactions with the world just kind of and use our own personal experience that we've accumulated. And, and that's how we understand people and, and situations. Um, movies um, can catapult us into situations we never have encountered or will encounter. We, we can be in outer space. We can be at war. Uh, we can be interacting with vampires. So movies give us, we think we know a lot about things We've never experienced. Now, that's true for certain uh, situations in education. For instance, obviously, I've, I've never been attended as a student to a women's college. But the movie Mona Lisa Smile about uh, the art teacher at Wellesley College may, may, leads me to think that, gee, I, I, I know Wellesley College pretty well. And the same is true with aspects of religious education. I've never even visited a fundamentalist Christian school. But if you watch the movie Saved, um, you you spend uh, two hours inside a fundamentalist Christian school. And, and so you, you you delude yourself into thinking that you really have a pretty good handle on, on fundamentalist Christian education. That's important because most of the people that make important policy decisions on education, which is to say in the United States, uh, state legislators, most of the budgets for education in the states uh, are from the individual states and the state legislators make these decisions, have never been, probably never been to a private school or a religious, a religious, private religious school or many of these other educational situations. So movies, I think, provide this kind of ordinary knowledge about um, educational situations and other aspects of life that we've never experienced personally. You also write that the enterprise of education is based on assumptions about human nature. As a psychologist, you know that the expression is seldom used by psychologists. Explain that for us. And how are different views of human nature reflected in films representing education? Well, um, the kind of educational frameworks and um, situations that, that a person promotes usually arise from uh, some implicit uh, beliefs about human beings. I mean, almost everyone's read the book Summerhill, 
And Summerhill was based on the notion that people are good and kids naturally grow and therefore an educational setting should maximize individual freedom and growth. Um, the more you intervene into the life of the kid, the more you're disrupting the kid's natural growth. And again, the assumption is that, that people are good. And if you leave them to their own devices, they, they will just grow up to be wonderful people. Well, well that's kind of one assumption about human nature. It may be a, a popular one, but it, but it's not the only one. Uh, many, many kinds of religious education take a, a, a slightly more sober view of uh, people. Um, as, uh, human beings may be a kind of a, a beehive of uh, conflicted feelings and motivations and needs and urges. Not all of them are good. And part of education, we might call it socialization in this case, is to help people learn to control themselves, not just express themselves. That would lead to a very different kind of, uh, of educational setting. Well, I don't know, uh, perhaps a military school, which believes that uh, people need discipline, they need structure. And one of the reasons they need it is because they have uh, potentially dangerous tendencies that, that need to be brought, brought under control. Which of these views do you subscribe to? Well, I actually subscribe to the biblical view of human nature, which is complex. Um, if you read the book of Genesis carefully, it certainly starts off with a very positive view. If humans are created in God's image, God is good, then human beings are basically good. But just a few chapters in, uh, God changes his mind about human nature, which is why he has to destroy the whole lot in a flood. They just have turned evil and they can't be fixed. So he wants to start all over again. Um, and then there's a third view, which kind of, as I've intimated, is that the human beings are kind of mixed. You know, there's good, good aspects and bad aspects. And uh, so th those are three different views of, of human nature. And, and I think they all, all need to be considered. The, the most popular view, and um, Steven Pinker, of course, has, has made this fame famous in his book about um, uh, ta tabula rasa, and um, th that's probably the, the, the current view that um, human beings really don't have human nature. I think that, that's why you, you mentioned before um, that it's not very popular to talk about. Um, we all start as kind of a blank slate, and then we're just kind of neutral. That's not the Summerhill position. Again, the Summerhill position is that that humans are, are just naturally good. So, um, yeah, so I, I think, as most psychologists, I think, would now admit that it's a, com a complex view. Yes, I think that's true. That would be generally accepted. Now, you refer to the philosopher of education, Savi Lamb's three basic strategies of instruction that characterize all types of education, formal classroom education, and informal, for example, movies. What are the strategies and the dynamic among them? If you can give us movie examples, that would be great. Well, um, at Svi Lam, uh, who was a, a philosopher of education here at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, um, thought that there are th three different kinds of instruction, uh, socialization, acculturation, and individuation. And I'll say a moment about what those are, but 
what's important in his thought is that the, he thinks these three are mutually exclusive. You, you, you can only do one at a time. And if you try to mix them, you're either fooling yourself or you're neutralizing your ability to do any one of the three. So socialization is pretty clear um, in education. That would be your, your run-of-the-mill public school takes kids from a variety of different backgrounds and uh, tries to teach them the basic values and attitudes and skills that a, a good citizen in that community needs to know. So they need to read and write. They have to have computer literacy. They have to learn to be honest. Um, their kids are being socialized, as, as they were in their family, to uh, function on a day-to-day -day basis with other people with a common language and common values. Uh, this is a very widespread and, and probably the baseline kind of education that goes on in, in most educational institutions. Acculturation uh, tries really to form more specifically the character of individuals according to a specific, perhaps subculture of a larger culture. So one example might be, let's say, music academies or the arts academies, which uh, focus in on a, a particular kind of creative personality, um, highly specialized skills and knowledge and sensitivities, and a way of looking at the world. Um, a, a military school, from a per certain point of view, might also be um, acculturating to a specific subculture of the greater society. Individuation, which is very popular in our day, according to Lamb, can't be taught in an institutional setting at all. It, it's much closer to Summerhill. Individuation really is helping each individual maximize their own potential and their own personality. Well, you, you really can't do that in a classroom of 30 or 40 kids. Many schools say they're doing this. I mean, they may even think they're doing it. But by the very nature of being in an institutional group setting, it's, it's really almost impossible, according to Lamb to do individuation in, in, a, in, a, uh, group, in a group setting. So um, in my chapter on civics education, um, I highlight two films, uh, one called, uh, by the way, uh, talking about movies that people haven't seen is about as interesting as talking about, you know, uh, Shakespeare plays that you've never read or seen. So I highly recommend um, Almost all these films are on the Internet, so it's easy to see them. So the two movies, Charlie Bartlett and uh, Worst Years of My Life, Middle School. I mean, that kind of speaks for itself. Um, both these films uh, deal with um, unique individuals who, who can't fit into a public school. Um, Worst Years of My Life Middle School is about an eighth grader who actually had been thrown out of two previous schools, and the only school that would take him now is this particular school where he doesn't fit in either. Charlie Bartlett is, a, is about an uh, upper-class Connecticut high school kid who has been thrown out of a series of private schools. And, the, and now he has to go to public school, which, of course, has to take him. So we have two unique individuals. Um, problematic in their own ways, but not evil. I mean, they, 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 these are good kids. They just can't fit into uh, regular frameworks. So um, 
from a certain point of view, putting them in a public school, which is all about socialization, um, is going to be a, a difficult, uh, difficult, interesting movie. And, and both of these films are about uh, the, the conflict of what happens with these two uh, interesting uh, kids in a, in highly structured, highly structured, um, non-functional public schools. So um, it's like all Hollywood movies these days, almost all Hollywood movies these days, the conflict between individualism and socialization is, is what's behind the conflict in many movies. And certainly in these, in these movies, uh, how, how will the educational framework respond to the needs of these, of these two, two kids? The sad part of the story is perhaps, especially in Charlie Barton, Charlie is a very creative, uh, innovative sociopath. He's a, he's a kind fellow, but um, really to become socialized and successfully integrate in his new school, he really has to give up uh, part of his uh, uniqueness and uh, even craziness. Who are the target audience for those two movies, which I've not seen, and they sound great? Are they aimed at adolescents, baby boomers? What are the demographics they try to reach? Yeah, I think the, the best people to answer that is probably the marketing department of these studios. I, I actually worked in market research for a while. Um, and as you know, in the book, I, I did a fair amount of work with um, animated movies, too. Uh, I think um, I, I, these movies are targeted at teenagers. Uh, they have money to spend. They have time to go to movies. Uh, frankly, I don't know if anybody goes to movies much anymore. Everything's on video online, but, but there are movies that are still in work. Um, yeah, those, those movies are targeted at high school kids. Um, animated movies, as you know, are, are, um, maybe, maybe targeted at, at young kids, but they always have a level in there for parents. And one of my, one of my favorite movies, um, in, is the ice age series from an educational point of view, but, it's, it's really got something for everybody. Little kids, it's got these cute little characters for little kids and lots of interesting action excitement for middle schoolers and sexual innuendo and gender issues for adults. So I, I think these um, studios are trying to target as broad an audience as, as they can. Well, I personally am a great fan of animation. It affords so much opportunity for creativity. They're great. Yes, they're not just for kids. Vince Lombardi famously said, winning isn't everything, winning is the only thing. What do movies have to say about the role of sports coaches as educators? Well, in the chapter on sports coaches educator, uh, I start off with that quote by Vince Lombardi, though, by the way, if you, if you uh, Google that, that phrase, there's a whole... Uh, a whole um, blog about who, who actually said that first, winning is in everything, it's the only thing. It turns out that Vince Lombardi may have borrowed it from somebody else, but I, I play that quote off against a quote from an equally famous uh, uh, basketball coach, John Wooden. And he has this fascinating quote that goes like this, you can lose when you outscore somebody in a game, and you can win when you're outscored. John Wooden was the supreme um, coach as educator. In fact, he started his career as a high school 
English teacher, and he was just doing basketball on the side. And then he went on to be uh, perhaps the most successful college basketball coach in history. But he really saw sports as educate as character education, and that's why he has this wonderful quote that you can lose when you outscore somebody. I know you you can technically have won the game because you had a higher score, but it, but if you didn't do it with character and at your full potential, as far as Wooden was concerned, you lost. On the other hand. The other team may have outscored you, but if you really played your best game, as far as witness is concerned, uh, you won. So I look at uh, I look at uh, coaches. I focus on one movie, uh, the movie Race, uh, which is based on, like a lot of these movies, based on a true story. It's the story of Jesse Owens, uh, the great track and field star of the 1930s who had an equally, at the time, equally famous track, track, uh, track coach. So I, I try to focus in on uh, what, what makes for a good coach, as well as what, what makes for bad coaching. Uh, I take a look at a movie called Varsity Blues, uh, which is, has a really evil coach. I mean, he's, he's a really evil coach. High school football uh, in small towns in the United States, sports, sports are their religion. And, uh, and the coaches are the high priests. And this, this guy's an evil coach. Uh, he has a high school player and he, he keeps shooting him up with cortisone so that he can keep playing. And it's, and he, he basically ru- ru- ruins the fellow. So one of the big issues in sports coaching movies these days has to do with, uh, are, can you be a good coach if you're not macho? Uh, m- macho coaches, of course, believe in hard work. Uh, winning is everything, and 110% devotion to sports. Uh, that's kind of the macho profile of uh, of a Hollywood of a successful Hollywood coach. But but contemporary movies are are presenting a more nuanced, uh, less macho view of of what it means to be a, a good coach, and um, you can certainly see that in the movie Race. So there's more emphasis on the power and influence of the coach in developing the character of the students rather than just their athletic prowess. Uh, well, they're certainly in the business of athletic prowess, but they, um, how do you, of course, there, there's a differentiation maybe between team sports and individual sports. Um, track and field is more or less an individual sport. Basketball is a team sport. So the, the slightly different skills are how do you build a, a team and teamwork but wouldn't would be interested in teamwork as a value in its own right that needs to be learned and fostered. He wouldn't believe that I think his, his, uh, his national championships prove that w- when you get a team to work well, um, then you win games. But it's, it's about learning teamwork for Wooden, not about winning games per se. He, he had, Wooden had a wonderful thing. He, he, he told his uh, players, do not criticize your fellow players. Criticism has a tendency to uh, to um, detract from team spirit. Wooden would say, my, my job is to criticize players. Your job is to be a team. So, I mean, it's, it's really uh, close attention to a whole range of values and skills. Um, sports, um, educational researchers have said that, that sports may be the most important 
part of the curriculum in terms of values, education, in terms of uh, teamwork and uh, group respecting differences, helping each other. I mean, it's and but of course it can be detrimental. I mean, if you take the Lombardi approach of winning, winning is everything, winning at any cost. Um, it, we see now in the marketplace. Um, some people think sports is important because life is all about winning. So if we can teach people to ruthlessly win, then they'll win in life too. Well, we, we pay the price for that later on. Absolutely. And speaking of the price, there's a great concern in the U.S. and in many other countries that confidence in one authoritative institutions and people, whether it's government or the press or the medical establishment or clergy, that confidence in those institutions continues to decline. What role do you think movies play in that growing distrust in social institutions? Well, I, I wish uh, they, they don't play the role they, they could, but again, it depends where you come down on that issue. Uh, since American society c- continues to be highly individualistic um, and self-fulfillment, um, and realizing your own personal potential and so on continue to be almost supreme values. If that's uh, the name of the game, then almost every institution will be seen as antagonistic to your needs and, and your growth. So, um, and since Hollywood serves, serves the prevailing values, uh, most Hollywood movies um, parade individualism and almost all institutions are, are portrayed as problematic. That's true of most um, education movies set in schools. Um, you do have uh, uh, some movies where the principal of a school is the hero, but generally speaking, the heroes of education movies that are set in schools are students or teachers. And therefore, the school institution and the principal are usually the enemy. So um, it's a hard road to hoe to, um, to find movies that are supportive of the institutions per se. Um, I'm trying to think of a, a good example. There aren't too many. There are principal movies, as I say, where the principals lean on me and some others where the principals are the heroes and, and they're in charge of the institution. In my chapter on, on um, religious education, the two movies that I study are, are both anti-religious. Well, let me correct that. They, Hollywood um, is supportive of spirituality and, and uh, emotional encounters and so on, but institutionalized religion uh, is uh, the enemy of true spirituality. So most the two movies I look at, um, uh, a Jewish movie, uh, Keeping Up with the Steins about Bar Mitzvah, and uh, the movie Saved, which is set in a fundamentalist Christian high school. Both of those films um, highlight the tension between individuals, their feelings, their needs, their spirituality, uh, which can't find a home in, in institutionalized religions. So I think that's, that's a common common theme, as it was, as I say, in the, the chapter on civics education, both Charlie Bartlett and, and, um, and Wraith 
who's the hero of the movie Middle, Middle School. Rafe, by the way, as it turns out, halfway through the movie, this isn't a total spoiler, but this, this fellow, young fellow Rafe, R-A-F-E, <laughs> that's an a, uh, acronym for rules aren't for everybody. <laughs> yeah, so so you can see so you can see uh, which which way that movie's going to go. He's going to any institution is going to get in the way of his expressing his his individuality. So that's a that's a tough one. And Hollywood has also been criticized for its anti-religious attitude, just by what it chooses to portray. At a time when, according to Gallup, nearly forty percent of Americans attend religious services regularly. We hardly ever see anybody in a movie going to church or synagogue or mosque. So what is the takeaway message that Hollywood expresses about religion and religious education? Well, so this movie, Keeping Up with the Steins, which, you know, I think everybody should see, uh, <laughs> um, is, 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 is exactly that message. I mean, it's, the crisis of the movie is about bar mitzvahs, and it's about a, a 12-and-a-half-year-old kid. Who, who doesn't want to have a bar mitzvah and um, the, the ups and downs of his family coming to terms with this. Well, his family, frankly, doesn't really want him to have a bar mitzvah either. They belong to a synagogue. They never attend synagogue. Um, they, at one point, his father actually says to him, uh, it's the party that matters, not what goes on in the temple. So, uh, yeah, it's it, the temple though the, the rabbi of the synagogue is initially not portrayed very sympathetically. And um, ironically, most of the movie is about the party and what the young bar mitzvah, the young bar mitzvah boy um, is able to change. I don't want to totally spoil the movie, but, but he is able to renegotiate uh, the party. That's where he really finds his personal expression. They don't change the synagogue service at all. Synagogue service is something you just have to endure. Um, you have to learn this strange language, Hebrew, and you have to recite some portion of the prophets you don't really understand. And um, you just, you, you suck, as this young fellow says, you just suck it up and do it. And, but the party, that's where you really can express uh, yourself and, and your family gets to express itself. I, I wish there were good news on, on that front. But uh, yeah, you're right. There are not positive portrayals. Um, the other movie, the, the Christian movie, um, Saved, ends up, uh, it's a wonderful portrayal of uh, a fundamentalist Christian education, but of course, it's a critical portrayal. And in the end, the heroine ends up uh, leaving, leaving, uh, leaving all the institutions, she and her parent and her mother, end up leaving these this institutions in which they grew up. So, uh, so the criticism is well-founded. Well, I think in this, remember, it may be difficult to believe, but movies are pretty conservative uh, reflections of society. Um, Hollywood movies, which is to say independent movies, are a different kettle of fish. And I only study Hollywood movies for various reasons. But um, Hollywood movies are a commercial venture. Uh, you, you can't afford to um, alienate anyone. They, they won't go to your movie. So um, they either they stay away from, from religion altogether uh, or they endorse spirituality, which is okay. The individual search for meaning and so on. But generally speaking, religious institutions and, and schools for that matter don't, don't come off very well. 
Let's go back to animation, since we both enjoy that genre. You write that the animated movie Zootopia is an outstanding example of a film which seeks to change its viewers' attitudes. That's a quote from your book. Talk about that. What attitudes does it seek to change, and what makes it outstanding? Well, it's a great, it's a great film, uh, as Zootopia, and uh, I don't think there have been any sequels yet, which is uh, probably good. Um, Ice Age, which is another great one, is it's in its fourth sequel already, and you know they they tend to kind of go downhill. So, Zootopia, um, well, it goes goes back to an issue we discussed earlier about human nature. Um, of course, the source of these animated films, at least the one that deals with animals, Toy Story and human-based ones may be different, but uh, both Ice Age and Zootopia are animal films. So that, this takes us all the way back to Aesop's Fables, of course, an animal farm. I mean, there's a long history of, a rich, interesting history of talking about the human society through, through animal portrayals. Um, so Zootopia... Um, Zootopia is supposed to be an animal utopia. It's supposed to be a kind of a 22nd century city. Well, 21st century city, actually, uh, all populated by human, by animals, uh, where ostensibly uh, it's, it's a kind of utopia. It, it, the movie opens with uh, six million years ago, where the world is divided in, into predator and prey. And uh, Zootopia now says, but the, all that's far behind us now. Thanks to millions of years of evolution, a prey and predator get along just well. So you see on this issue of changing animal nature, Zootopia pretends to say, look, you can fundamentally change nature. I mean, what could be more natural than being a predator? I mean, uh, lions are not vegans. I mean, it's just, it's just the way they are. I mean, you may like, uh, if you're a Cocker Spaniel person, then you won't have a Rottweiler for a pet. I mean, that, so, but this movie starts out by, by pretending that uh, you can change fundamental nature and everybody gets along just fine. But then very quickly, the reality is different. And it turns out in this city of Zootopia, stereotypes, animal stereotypes persist. So the star of the movie is a little bunny rabbit, a young little bunny rabbit uh, girl whose lifelong dream has to be, is, was to become the first rabbit on the Zootopia police force. But first of all, she has to overcome the dumb rabbit um, stereotype. And second of all, you know, she's just a little rabbit. I mean, how is she going to deal with really nasty criminals? So, um, and she's stereotyped because, you know, the police force is mostly made up of bulls and, uh, and, uh, and German shepherd dogs and uh, what's the little rabbit. So, and the other, her, her pair character is a um, uh, fox. Now, he, of course, has the sly fox stereotype to overcome. There are no foxes on the um, police force because who would put a fox on a police force? There, there's an old um, English proverb: "Don't have a fox on the jury at the goose's trial." I mean, foxes are just out there. Are they swindlers themselves? So uh, it very quickly develops in this film that there are tons of stereotypes, 
And on the surface, it looked just like ours as human societies, right? I mean, it looks like everyone gets along, but uh, there's all kinds of uh, racial and other tensions and stereotypes. And the movie is trying to convince people that uh, let's not delude ourselves. Things aren't perfect yet. But if we work real hard, we can make things change. But we have to work hard at it. That's kind of an interesting um and the way the movie, uh, aside from that being the plot of the movie, the movie is, is quite in your face on getting that message across to its audience. At the graduation of the police academy, uh, uh, this little bunny rabbit uh, is addressing the next class of graduates. And so she's standing at a podium looking at the class of graduates, but but she's talking directly to us in the audience. The camera, so to speak, is at the back of the graduating class. So when the bunny is talking directly to the graduating class, the bunny is actually talking directly to us in the audience saying, you can do it. We Each of us needs to work on changing ourselves to make a better society. I mean, things don't get more brazen than that. Well, that raises an interesting point. I think most people will agree and be happy with the message that we can all work to improve our societies. But when a movie, or any other media as well, tries to overtly change the attitudes or reflect a message, what differentiates it from propaganda? Well, that's what makes education movies very interesting because uh, this will bring us back to a basic definition of education. And there are ideal in the book with at least three main different definitions. But I think everybody would agree that education, uh, Nathan Rothenstrike, the Israeli philosopher's definition was that, that education is about change. It's about changing people and presumably changing them for the better. Um, so if we, if we could agree on, on education as being about change, even in individuation, uh, the person is changing themselves. But um, education is about change. A good example, I mean, if you just think about um, if, you, if you pay a private tutor for music lessons, uh, you, you, you expect the music teacher to, to change your kid, to help them acquire skills and sensitivities in music. And, and if they, they didn't, it's a waste of money. I mean, you change teachers. So um, education is, a, is about change. And then, of course, we would have to have a discussion about well, what kinds of change do we want? Now, changes in skills are, generally speaking, um, pretty not controversial. Learning to read, learning to write, uh, basic academic skills, those aren't too controversial. But, of course, well, what's going to be in the curriculum? What are we going to read when we learn how to read? So that's when education has changed, begins to become interesting and controversial, what are the ideas that we want to expose kids to? What are the ideas that we, we don't want to expose them to? So um, there's a whole, and I make allusion to this, I mean, there's a whole literature in, in the educational literature on brainwashing and uh, propaganda. And uh, I, I wish I could think of examples. Um, I think the art movie, um, Mona Lisa Smile, there, the art teacher is accused of being subversive, and she's teaching art. Of course, she's teaching it in a very conservative, uh, very conservative, uh, tradition-bound uh, private women's college, Wellesley. 
Uh, but she's accused of being uh, subversive because she's introducing values uh, and ideas that are, are, are different from what the Wellesley community, certainly the, the parents who are paying a lot of tuition money to send their daughters there, uh, think they're getting as an education. Speaking of art education, many school systems are, let's say, ambivalent about the role of art education within the school in formal education settings. It seldom has the highest priority. So what is the attitude of Hollywood films about education in the arts? Well, as you might have guessed, um, Hollywood thinks of themselves as artists, <laughs> you know. Um, and they, so they think the arts are great. I, the arts are great. But obviously their presentation of the arts as a liberating, a humane, human uh, enterprise is, is almost always positive. Um, that's, that's exactly the problem that this art teacher runs into because she sees art as a way to open people's hearts and minds and to entertain different ways of looking at the world. And that, as, so there are people who, who see that as subversive. So she does, the movie is set in the early 1950s. She takes her class on a field trip to see Jackson Pollock painting a, a, a painting. Well, that, that's very, there is no Jackson Pollock in the official curriculum that she's supposed to be teaching. So, so she's, she's viewed as, as subversive, and, and that, that, that's what makes for a good movie. If there's no crisis, there's no movie. Hollywood in general uh, is very positively disposed towards arts and arts education um, to the point that in, in that particular movie, Mona Lisa Smile, there's real religious transcendence in that movie happens in the art class, not in church. There are two church scenes uh, in the movie. That's where the school graduate, uh, the opening of the academic year takes place. Um, what happens in church is not spiritual. What happens in the art classroom in this film, that's, that's really spiritual. You, you know, on religious calendars and so on, you know how they portray God. There's kind of clouds and there's rays of light coming through clouds. And everybody knows that's divine. Well, that's how the scene is shot in this movie, Mona Lisa Smile, in her art classroom at the last class of the, of the year and in the movie. There's, there's this sunlight streaming in through the, through the, uh, through the windows because the, the, it's, it's a kind of um, supernatural, spiritual encounter. So it's both spiritual and subversive. Well, it's, yes, because by being, uh, by being spiritual in, in many of these settings, you, you are being subversive. Um, the, the best example that everybody knows, everybody remembers the movie Dead Poets Society with, um, with Robin Williams, uh, a blessed memory. I mean, he's, he's a classic subversive teacher who ends up getting fired. Um, a lot of the best teachers in these movies get fired because uh, the institution just can't, just can't uh, take them. So that seems to be a recurrent theme, that the institution of education, formal education, schools, colleges, middle school, are restrictive and negative. Every now and then you get a teacher or a coach or a student that transcends it. Is that the message? Yes, but we, yes, because individualism is what counts. Remember, one of the prevailing values in American society is individualism. So um, 
the institutions, which will almost always squelch individualism. Uh, so you'll get a maverick hero teacher or hero student who will take on the institution and, and win. Hollywood likes that. Uh, again, because I think it's, it's a popular value in the United States, to, to, perhaps to our detriment. I mean, um, I talk a little bit about the movie on civics education that the, the, our, the current political situation in America, maybe even here in Israel, um, we haven't managed to uh, come up with a workable teamwork society. Um, maybe we need more sports education. We, we have these, as this movie Zootopia said, we have these deep-seated stereotypes and differences, and it's, it's showing up now in, in our political system. Uh, better civics education, I mean, a lot of money has been spent on civics education over the years. I mean, the kids are in school for 12 years. Um, if the political life of the school were doing a better job of teaching these skills of thinking together and working together and tolerating differences, uh, maybe maybe our societies would be different. I, I, I hate to fault our schools because um, we ask them to do so much. Uh, many things that are really outside their ken, perhaps drug education, sex education, uh, school, now political education. But um, there's lots of room for thought. If you watch these two movies, Charlie Bartlett and uh, and Worst Years of My Life, you'll do some hard thinking about what kinds of political lessons are kids getting out of out of their schools. Good schools today often feature critical thinking. They try to teach kids who are seeing and reading so much more information from often dubious sources how to think about the text in front of them in a critical and nuanced way. Should we be educating ourselves for critical thinking about movies? Well, sure. Um, uh, by the way, if, if, if you want to be um, uh, sensitive and on the alert to... Uh, um, uh, brainwashing. You know, our, our kids are spending uh, six, eight, ten, twelve hours a day in front of screens, and who knows what who knows what they're seeing. And um, uh, by the way, critical thinking, I think, in the history of education, started uh, just around and after World War II, when when it became clear that the, the powers of indoctrination and uh, political influence were very important. So th this is a this is an approach to education which has, has been around a long time. You, you know, academics are a little contrary. I, I wonder if we also need more consensus on, on what the values we share are. Um, uh, educa education towards, towards those things. Um, that brings us to a point about American movies. They almost always have happy endings compared to movies made in other countries. Does the inevitability of happy endings teach the audience hope and optimism or other things? Well, all in all, I think we believe optimism is a good thing. I think that's also part of the American heritage. So, uh, uh, and I think um, all things being equal, kids, especially younger kids, certainly need to um, feel at home in the world and to have hope for a better world. I, I think that's... Uh, that's certainly part of religious education and, and it's certainly part of the American heritage. Well, I think I was going to say before, it's on the same point. Um, there's a big question, you know, are, are movies educative at all? Um, are movies themselves educative? 
And um, there's a good case you can, I think movies try to be educative. The people that made Zootopia want to get their message across to the audience. And then they very much in a very direct way uh, get their message across. And, and a good movie, like a good classroom session, if it's interesting and well-made, you know, you will get the message across. But it's a one-shot deal. You know, if you see a movie, of course, nowadays we can watch a movie over and over again. In the old days, when you and I were growing up, uh, you saw it once and that was it. And um, but uh, commercials now, there's there's an educative message. I mean, you, uh, you you watch these commercials over and over and over again. Um, that, that's a much more sustained way to get a message across. So the, the things kids are watching on their screens uh, may have much more impact than, than, a one, than a one-shot movie. Well, David, this has been a very interesting conversation. We've taken up a lot of your time. Before you go, tell us what you're working on now. Well, now I've, I've uh, gone to a, the other total opposite direction. Um, I, I may be one of the – there's a journal called the Journal of Moral Education, and I may, may be the only author who published two articles in there uh, separated by 2,000 years. I did publish uh, two articles in there about movies, the moral, the moral message of, um, of movies. And I also published an article there about a very interesting law in the book of Deuteronomy on the rights of the beautiful captive of war. So um, from a moral point of view, and that's what I'm working on now. Uh, there are four verses. It's a law that's only four verses long, and I'm into about six or eight chapters already. Um, it's tied to, of course, many of the great atrocities that have happened in the 20th century and even now in the 20th century with ISIS. Um, how, how are women captives of war treated? And what does that have to say about, how, about men and about women? So um, unfortunately, it's as, as relevant now as it, as it was back then. So that's, and there's no, and by the way, there's some movies about that. Um, so, so I, I, I quote the movies uh, that are involved. So, but it's an interesting change of gears. Well, I'll stay tuned to see the book when it comes out. It sounds like a very interesting project. I want to thank you so much for being on the podcast today. And thanks as well to our researcher, Bela Pasikov. Thank you.